Ranked one of America's top research universities, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee plays a vital role in shaping the future of Milwaukee and Wisconsin. UWM's diversity, academic excellence, and world-class research contribute to the region's economic development and quality of life. Meet the people behind the creativity and discoveries on UWM Today. Here's the host, Tom Lujak, Vice Chancellor of University Relations. In his first couple of months in office, President Joe Biden has focused much of his attention on domestic issues, including the continued impact the COVID pandemic has had on people and the economy. He's also done a lot of work with the threat of more domestic terrorism, beginning with the attack on the U.S. Capitol. But another huge item on the Biden administration's agenda is foreign policy, how the United States will interact with the rest of the world. On today's program, we meet a UWM political science professor who has traveled the world and has become an expert on international diplomacy. Shale Horowitz, welcome to UWM Today. Thank you so much for having me. Shale, we have a lot of territory to cover, and in fact, we are going to swing around the world virtually as we discuss what to expect from President Biden. But let's first begin by taking a look at where America stands today, particularly with our European allies. What's the state of those relationships after four years of former President Trump's leadership? Well, this is uh, a question of different expectations between Europe and the United States, which go back a long way, um, particularly about burden sharing. Um, How much should Europe spend on its defense relative to the United States? That's an old dispute where the United States has been arguing that Europe isn't doing enough given its wealth, given that Russia in the past, the Soviet Union was a more immediate threat to Europe than the United States. So President Trump was unusually aggressive about confronting them about this and about demanding that they raise their defense spending to the 2% of GDP that had been agreed upon in the past. And many European countries, particularly those more threatened by Russia, have made significant movements in that direction. But there was a kind of particularly strong disagreement with Germany over this Germany being the largest economy in Europe and spending um, closer to 1% of GDP now rather than 2% of GDP. And they reacted to Trump's demands by essentially refusing to make any steps forward. Um, And I think their refusal was getting their backs up at being confronted so publicly about it. So there was a kind of ugly public standoff about that. And it was also compounded by the dispute with Germany over the new um, construction of gas pipelines from Russia to Germany. So the position of the Trump administration was that at a time when uh, Europe and the United States are imposing sanctions on Russia for seizing Ukrainian territory, why is Germany building uh, pipelines that will funnel huge amounts of additional money to Russia and reduce? the leverage of Eastern European countries through which Russian gas now flows to Europe. So again, there was a big confrontation about that, which was unresolved. And uh, the Trump administration used economic sanctions on on the construction companies to prevent that from being completed. And it looks like the Biden administration is going to allow that to be completed. But the dispute over the 
burden sharing is still there and is still real. Is it your sense that uh, Biden has uh, a lot of fences to mend here uh, or by virtue of the fact that he has a softer personality, uh, a personality that is not as strident and as confrontational. Will that work to his advantage in reconnecting with allies in Europe who may have felt disenfranchised? Um, Well, I think there's a difference here between words and deeds. Undoubtedly, in terms of words, there's going to be a lot more, um, figuratively speaking, a, a backslapping and hugging. But Will there be any actual change in European policy? That remains to be seen, and and frankly, I'm skeptical. So I think the more fundamental issue here is actually not words. It's what the various countries perceive to be in their interests. Germany is not threatened by Russia like Poland is threatened by Russia. So therefore, Germany doesn't feel a need to spend as much on defense as Poland. And no amount of nice words is going to change that easily. What about uh, the uh, trade agreement between the U.S. and uh, and the European Union? Uh, certainly, everybody's aware that uh, the European Union and uh, uh, Britain have gone through a divorce. Brexit uh, is real now. Um, but, um, but there was sure a lot of saber rattling in the Trump administration about uh, the unfair trade deals that Trump claimed existed between the U.S. and Europe. Do you see a a softening on that front? Yeah, I I actually think that that was one of the more unreasonable positions taken by the Trump administration, that that many of our trade agreements with allies were unfair, almost in the way that trade with China has been unfair. And I think that that was a very severe exaggeration. In other words, there's no question that Any trade agreement involves give and take and various inequalities. And historically, it is true that Europe imposes higher trade barriers on American goods than America imposes on Europe. The main area of that is agricultural products. But over time, the trade barriers between the two sides have come down to very low levels overall. And in general, trade with Europe is very free and does not it is not problematic in the way that trade for example with china is so that is already very good and it may become better in the future but in general there isn't really a problem there when uh, joe biden uh, addressed uh, uh, the european leaders uh, a few weeks ago he um triggered a response that uh, that was Interesting from Boris Johnson, Britain's leader, who said, it's good to see that the United States is back. America once again has established itself as the, the leader uh, of, uh, of uh, democracy in the world. And there were some other European leaders who were saying, hold on, we're not quite sure we want to be uh, in a position of, of uh, inferiority to the U.S. as uh, as." Uh, Boris's words suggested. Do do you see that uh, we'll get back to the way things were before Trump under Biden, or is it uh, likely now that there's going to be more independence on the part of the European leaders? Well, again, if if we look past previous rhetoric or current rhetoric to reality, 
this has always been the way it is. It's very unpopular in any democracy to be told that you are following the policy of other countries. And European countries, especially large European countries, working collectively as they do in the EU or working alone now as Britain does, they are inevitably going to make policy in their own interests. Of course, they will have close relations with each other, with the United States, with many other countries, but they will never defer in some kind of unconditional way to any other country, and that includes the United States, and that has always been the way it is. So American leadership, to the extent that it has existed, has always been voluntary. That is, we agree with our allies on mutually advantageous agreements and policies. I mentioned at the beginning of the program, we're going to swing around the world as we explore how Joe Biden's administration deals with international diplomacy. Let's move from Europe uh, a little bit east to Russia. You mentioned it before, uh, the fact that uh, some European countries view Russia as more of a threat than others. Um, what about the relationship between the U.S. and Russia? Uh, how do you see Biden dealing with Vladimir Putin? Again, I would say here that um, it, if we move away from words, there's not going to be much change in substance. So although Trump had this confidence that he could develop personal relationships with leaders and make deals to the advantage of the United States on the basis of those personal ties, and therefore he, he hesitated to criticize those leaders publicly, his actual policies toward Russia were harsher than Obama's were. So I think that Biden substantively is going to be very similar to Trump, but there's going to be more public criticism of Putin. I think that will be the main difference. But in terms of policies, I don't think there will be a significant difference. Of course, one of the big issues that uh, Joe Biden faces as president is he's inheriting the the impact or the results of that uh, now infamous cyber attack that took place uh, near the end of 2020 uh, on Trump's watch and sort of the closing days of that administration. And uh, there, there are a lot of people here at the U.S. who are really, really worried about uh, the fact that some of our greatest secrets may have been uh, exposed by what everybody seems to believe was a, a Russian-driven hacking effort. Do you think that is going to have a major impact on how Biden deals with Russia going forward? I think that this is more of the same, and, and I hope we get to this when we talk about China, but this Russia attack is a kind of drop in the bucket compared to what has been conducted by China over the last number of decades even. Um, so that was a very severe penetration, and we don't know fully what the damage is, but um, this is a very long-standing, serious problem that we have. It's not limited to one adversary, and it is most dangerously coming from, from China rather than even Russia. So I don't know that there's a big change here. They've been trying to do these things, and they have been doing these things on a smaller scale for some time. The question is, what can we do to either stop these attacks from being so successful or to 
develop forms of retaliation that will deter them. Yeah, well, we you mentioned China. Let's let's talk about China because uh, it now has the number two economy in the world, right on the heels of the United States, um, and uh, spectacular growth, uh, even uh, in light of the COVID pandemic. Well, e- economies and countries around the world are still struggling. Um, last quarter, China leaped ahead and showed the numbers show that it essentially is back to where it was uh, before COVID. Um, a lot of criticism, though, of uh, Chinese President Xi because of the way in which he has led his country to that now near-dominant position. What do you see in the relationship between the U.S. and China on the Biden watch? Well, uh, China has as you say, emerging as what uh, they call in the business a peer competitor of the United States, meaning effectively an equal. Um, And that's true both economically and increasingly, it's also true militarily because the money is being plowed into the military as well as into other um, areas in China. So we are seeing very fundamental confrontation now emerging between China and the United States, both in the economic realm and in the military geopolitical realm. And this is a fundamental change from bipartisan U.S.-China policy since the early 1970s. And um, a lot of things have changed. The, The major thing that's changed apart from the collapse of the Soviet Union is that China has not evolved in a benign way. It's not evolved toward democracy, toward being an equal player in the international market. It has continued to operate its economy and policy in a very different way, in a way which violates standard norms of international trade and investment. And it is increasingly challenging the United States and its allies militarily all the way from Japan to India. You mentioned a moment ago the um, fact that China has been involved in a lot of cyber attacks itself. It goes beyond, though, just uh, attacking our systems. Uh, China has done uh, an incredible job in terms of of stealing secrets from universities, from research hospitals. Uh, it, it's, it's not just government versus government, but uh, there's a lot of evidence that China uh, is doing all that it can to enrich itself with the ideas, with the knowledge uh, that uh, is being produced in democratic countries like the U.S. What can Joe Biden do to, to deal with that issue? Tom, I'm so glad you mentioned that because this is a foundational problem. This is um, theft of technology on a scale far exceeding anything which we have ever seen. Just to give you a sense of the scale of it, the estimates that we have now in the United States are that Chinese technology theft costs America alone something like four to $500 billion a year. That's just the United States. To give you a sense of how much money that is, that's real money. The total costs for the US of climate change in the year 2090 are estimated to be about the same. That's after 70 years more of uh, carbon emissions. So. Economically speaking, we have a problem with Chinese technology theft today 
which is similar to what is projected for climate change in 70 years. This is a huge issue. Um, and do you, do you think it is going to be one that that uh, the Biden administration uh, will be successful in in stopping in, in you know, dealing with this theft? OK, before I answer that question, I want to step back and talk about some related problems because it's a package that we have to deal with with China. So in addition to the technology theft, China is also using subsidies and regulatory preferences in the Chinese market to reserve the Chinese market primarily for Chinese firms, state-owned firms, and large firms connected with the government. Its strategy is to use subsidies and protected access to that market to build up those companies, to take over market share in high technology areas from American and other Western European countries to begin with in the Chinese market, and then to supplant us in foreign markets. So we also face this problem. We have very little reliable access to the Chinese market, and they are using subsidies to favor their own companies against ours and those of our partners and allies abroad. So this is not just a problem confronted by the United States, it's a problem confronted by Japan, by Western Europe, by our Southeast and Southern Asian allies, like by the ASEAN countries, by India. They're trying to eat all of our economic lunches at once. So what can we do about this? The answer is there's nothing simple that we can do. In fact, President Obama already came to an agreement with Xi to stop this, but of course it didn't stop. I'm talking about the technology theft now. They just made the agreement and they just went ahead and violated it, as they have virtually every other agreement they have made internationally. So this is a real problem. Not only are we dealing with a foe that behaves like this, but we are dealing with a foe that breaks every agreement it makes as soon as it's convenient for it, very often immediately before the ink is dry. You know, one of the big criticisms of the, uh, the Trump administration's policy towards uh, China was that he was trying to fight them alone. He he got into a fight with the European allies who should be our best partners in dealing with a threat such as the one that China is presenting. Uh, but he ended up splintering that field. Do you think uh, President Biden's administration will be interested in trying to create a new partnership, uh, a new alliance of our allies so that we can take on this Chinese uh, challenge in a more united front? Yeah, I think that's important. But 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 first, before I get to that, I would like to point out, though, that uh, this is an area where the Trump administration had a major success in comparison with all previous administrations. It actually recognized this problem for the first time and started to try to do something by using China's reliance on our markets for bargaining leverage. And he actually did work quite effectively with many US allies in this area, mainly those that most directly face the Chinese threat. So again, in the arc from Japan through Southeast Asia and Australia around to India. But you're right that the poor relations with uh, Europe have made it more difficult to cooperate with Europe in this area. 
Uh, I hope that that can be done more successfully by the Biden administration. But going back to our discussion earlier, we have to recognize that Europe does what it's in is what is in its interests, and Europe does not feel as threatened by China as the countries that are closer to China. And so we may not be able to achieve the level of cooperation with Europe that we can with other countries. One piece of evidence of that is that just before President Biden was sworn in, the EU announced a major investment agreement with China, tying its hands, making it more difficult for it to use its leverage against China. Now, that was not a very good move. If they wanted to cooperate with the United States, they should have waited for the Biden administration to come into office and, and coordinated with us. Yeah, so, but they saw their own self-interest being yeah. served by that move. We're not the only ones that often do things only for our own interests. If you're just joining us, you're listening to UWM Today here on WUWM. Good to have you with us this week. Shale Horowitz is my guest. Shale is a professor of political science in the College of Letters and Science at UWM. And we're talking about uh, an area that he has devoted much of his life to, which is looking at foreign affairs, international diplomacy. And we're topic today is uh, how the Biden administration is going to be dealing with countries around the world. Um, Shale, I want to talk about um, the situation that Biden, President Biden is facing in Iran. Um, uh, of course, uh, President Trump uh, tried to alter that Iran Iranian nuclear agreement that uh, the Obama administration had um, helped put together with other countries around the world and essentially said, I'm pulling out. Uh, we now see signals that uh, the Biden administration may want to get back into that game and try to be back at the bargaining table. Do you think he's going to be successful on that front? Okay, before I answer that question, I think we need to go back and review the content of the Iran agreement of 2015 and understand why it was so controversial. So basically what the situation was at the time that that agreement was announced or made was that Iran was moving slowly toward the point where it could acquire a small number of nuclear weapons, maybe within the next five to 10 years, potentially, if it were not, if it were not impeded in any way. So that was a serious danger, and there was a desire to do something about that. So what the 2015 agreement did is that it eliminated that problem in the short run at the cost of potentially creating a much bigger problem in the long run. So it's a very uh, controversial and debatable decision to make. So Iran agreed not to pursue nuclear enrichment at a high level and in large quantities in the near future, but in accordance with the agreement over eight to 15 years after the agreement is signed, and that was already almost six years ago, Iran gets to, Iran gets to gradually build up the amount of enriched uranium and centrifuges it has, ultimately without limits, so that after 15 years, it can accumulate unlimited quantities of enriched uranium and plutonium and also acquire the, the related military capabilities that are let, that are necessary to deliver nuclear weapons against the whole world 
and to defend those nuclear assets against attack. So what that does is, is it confronts the Biden administration with a very difficult situation. If it goes back into the agreement now without changing it at all, it's going to face an Iran possibly within seven or eight years moving toward having hundreds of nuclear weapons, not two or three nuclear weapons. And that is why I think Secretary of State Blinken has said that he not only wants to go back into the agreement, but he wants to extend the time limits so that these restrictions on Iranian um, acquisition of uh, enriched nuclear material do not phase out. And he wants to expand the agreement to include other areas, such as Iran's efforts to dominate the region. Yeah, so it's not just a matter of trying to establish good relations, but also protecting the rest of the world from the Iranian nuclear threat. Yes, and it's a very difficult balancing act because if you go back into the agreement fully, then Iran has no incentive to do anything more. They've already said they're not going to renegotiate the agreement. Yeah. So then if the Biden administration wants to prevent them from acquiring that massive nuclear capability, they're going to have to start threatening to reimpose sanctions very quickly. Well, there's no question based on uh, on just the handful of countries that we've covered that President Biden and his team are going to have their hands full. We only have a few minutes left, but I really want you to be able to talk about a neat, neat program that you've been involved with here at UWM uh, for the last couple of decades, which is UWM's United Nations Summer Program, a program that was canceled last year because of COVID, but you you hope to be bringing students uh, to the uh, front door, the, the main stage of international politics again this summer. Tell us, a, or, or, I'm sorry, tell our listeners a bit about it. This is a really great program, which I love. That's why I've been doing it for so long. And what we do is, is we go to New York for four weeks. Students are living right in Midtown Manhattan near the UN, enjoying everything that New York has to offer including access to these diplomats that are representing countries at the UN. And it's an amazing thing. We meet with something like 35 diplomats representing different countries. It's a cross section of the whole world. We go into their offices. They speak to us briefly for about 15 or 20 minutes. And then after that, it's Q and A with our students. And it's really awesome. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, you know, ideological martial arts. You know, um, uh, SmackDown, you know, we get to ask any questions we want. They answer whatever they want. We we answer back, make arguments. They make arguments back. It's a great opportunity for students to really see the rough and tumble of diplomacy, right? Diplomacy isn't primarily about making deals. Diplomacy is about getting your word out and convincing everybody that your enemies are wrong and you are right. It's so gotta be, students can really see that in the flesh. They, they must love it, the, the, the notion of being in that position to, to see world leaders. I think I'm going to sign up. It, that sounds like a great program. <laughs> I'll go with you, Shale. <laughs> love to have you. Shale, fascinating conversation. We're going to have you back on because we still have a oh, no, whole nother half of the world that we didn't even get to in today's program. But uh, But just wonderful comments and great insights from you. And thank you so much for being part of today's program. Thank you so much, Tom. Shale Horwitz, Professor of Political Science at UWM, our guest on this edition of UWM Today. That's all for this week. Take care, everybody. Stay healthy, and we'll see you next week. 
I'm Tom Jack. You've been listening to UWM Today with host Tom Lujak, the weekly program where you get to meet the people behind one of America's top research universities, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Playing a vital role in shaping the future of Milwaukee and Wisconsin, UWM's diversity, academic excellence, and world-class research contributes to the region's economic development and quality of life. Learn more at uwm.edu.